Father's Day. If you have a father, stand up. (laughs) Make sure that you call your dad if you're able. My dad's in heaven, so I asked the Lord to relay the message to him. Uh, If you have a father and you're able, uh, remind him that you love him. Uh, If you have a father who you're not close to, you're estranged from for some reason, that was a hard childhood, I get that as well, Uh, then pray for them. Maybe you will be the one that the Lord would use to soften them. Uh, But don't abandon your fathers. This is a good time to to remember them. Uh, So do remember them. Tell them of your love for them. Um, all right, there's several things on the back here that you need to pay attention to. We do have Faith Day of the Rockies. You can now sign up at the Welcome Center. If you've never gone to that, you need to go. It is an absolute blast. There's at least 100 of us that go every year. We have our own section. It's in the shade. You get the Rockies play. They're competitive this year. <clears throat> you recorded. <laughs> so uh, aside from that, uh, it's a great time. It's just really a good time to be together. We spend a lot of time together as a church. You have a new summer service time. Most of you have figured it out. Not all of you have. It's great to see some of you here an hour early today. It's great to see a few wandering in late. And this is for the rest of the summer. But July 8th is our first summer, our first Sunday in the amphitheater. July 8th. It's easy to... That's right. Yeah. Woohoo, right? Yeah. It's easy to remember. I'll help you because I know you're not all that smart. July 4th is the first concert we have at the next Sunday, July 8th. Okay? If you come here, have a great time. Okay? We do have pub theology tonight. For those of you that like to come to that, feel free. And there's plenty of other things on there you can uh, take a look at. I would like to stop and pray. And uh, Marie, uh, Tim and Marie are here. Go ahead and wave to everybody. We've been praying, that's right, we've been praying a lot for Marie as a church and as individuals. Uh, most of you know Marie was diagnosed with pretty aggressive cancer, and, um, and in the beginning stages, we were pretty, you know, Lord, what are you doing? And we've prayed a lot for her, and God is answering our prayers, and she's here and enjoying life, and it's beautiful as ever. We're just really glad you're here. So we want to thank the Lord for that. So let's just take just a moment. And thank the Lord for that in VBS. Father, we are very grateful that our friend Marie is here. Lord, as we've reminded you, because we do like to remind you, that uh, she is an indispensable part of our church, her and Tim. They have, uh, well, they just help us bring your kingdom out to people who don't know you. Father, thank you for answering our prayers the way we asked and for restoring our health. And we pray, Lord, that... Um, as with several others sitting here, that you've done that before. We pray that you would just make it permanent and take care of the cancer. Lord, we don't mean to uh, slight others in our congregation who are sick. We, we ask that you would continue to watch over our whole church body and uh, keep us safe. And help us, Lord, with these challenges. And Father, thank you for VBS. Thank you for the very great privilege of, of, of sharing your son with so many of these children, many of which don't know you. We pray, Lord, as Mark said this morning, that the seed would be planted and that somewhere down the road you would water it and it would uh, blossom. Father, thank you for the staff and the volunteers who worked so hard this week 
Uh, they were so tired at the end of the week. Pray that you would bless them, Lord. They, uh, um, they may have to wait a number of years before they get to see some of the benefit of what they did, the investment that they made, but it's very powerful. Thank you. Thanks for helping us to be a church that loves children and loves to reach out. In uh, your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in a long, long, long series all year where we've been talking about the cross, what Christ accomplished on the cross. And each segment in this series, we've, these various series, we've stopped and looked at this from different angles. And so now we're in Philippians and we're asking what it means to be a servant. A servant's, how to develop a servant's heart. We, uh, we had talked about the fact that Christ died a very countercultural death. When he died on the cross, the exile ended, sin was forgiven, the glory of the Lord returned to the temple, the spiritual temple, us. And so we've experienced a new life under the new covenant. And so we've looked at that from a variety of angles. So if Christ died a countercultural death, that means a death that the culture did not expect, including his own people. Nobody expected it. Nobody on the earth could have understood what was going on. Even after the fact, the disciples and the early church scratched their heads for a long time trying to sort this out, trying to make sense of it. If he did that, what does it look like for us to live countercultural lives? And so what does it really mean to be a servant? And that's what we're looking through uh, and looking at Philippians to help us understand that. So last week we looked at what does it mean to leave the past behind us? That's an important part. Um, by the way, for those of you that do have parents, mothers or fathers that grew up, where you grew up with them and it was not a healthy relationship, a very important part is learning how to forgive. That's the past. Not letting that have that much power in your life, but letting it forgive. That's why I said, so if you have a father who your relationship was not healthy and he's still alive, if you, if you, don't, if you can't call him, pray for him. Pray for him. Still love him. And so we talked about what does it mean to leave the past behind. Today we're going to look at what does it mean to live into the future. So we're going to look in Philippians 3. We're going to start in verse 12. The very beginning of this answer to this question of living into the future, he starts off with a metaphor. There's Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this. Now in verse 11, here's how he ended. He said, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's his ultimate goal is attain to the resurrection of the dead. Somehow. Somehow doesn't mean he might attain to it or not. Somehow means, I don't know how I'm going to attain to it. Because he said earlier, I might live, I might die. I don't know, but it's all good. All I know is if I'm left on the earth, this is good for you. And so I don't know what it looks like to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I don't know the course that God is going to take me from. There are certain deaths, honestly, that I pray, Lord, if I have a say in it, please help me to avoid these kind of deaths. I'd like to go to sleep and wake up with you. But I'm kind of soft. I want an easy death. But I don't know. I do believe wholeheartedly that whatever path he takes me on to resurrection, his grace will be sufficient. I have no idea how those early saints were sawn into, burned at the stake. I mean, read that list in Hebrews 11. I have no idea. But I am absolutely confident that his grace was extremely powerful in their lives in that moment in time. And I have confidence in that. So he says, somehow I'm going to attain from the resurrection of the dead. And then he launches right into this. Not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So he just swapped metaphors. He was just talking about gains and losses. Whatever I've gained is actual loss. So he's using accounting, bookkeeping metaphors. And all of a 
of a sudden now he moves over here with a very different athletic metaphor. Okay? Um, I press on to the goal. What's the goal? What is that goal? This passage is filled with all this imagery of what the goal is. And I kind of want to take this apart a little bit and help you grasp what he thinks the goal is because it's the same goal as us. He had just said his desire was to attain the resurrection from the dead. True maturity actually means that you are aware that you have not yet arrived. The moment you say, I've arrived, you're not there. One of the core elements of maturity is to recognize that you have not yet arrived. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter how much you're worth. It doesn't matter any of those accomplishments. Paul gave us his long litany in the last passage of everything he'd accomplished. And he came to realize when he came to know Christ that that meant nothing. And instead of arriving, which makes you stop, you need to press on toward the goal. You need to press on toward the goal. This metaphor introduces the idea of self-discipline. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That's a very important word, strict training. That occurs all throughout the New Testament. In fact, we often look at that, translate that word as discipline. Don't think of punishment. Think of athletic training. God is disciplining you in this life. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, no. I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So this metaphor, this strict training is a metaphor for living out your faith. You're going to have a million things thrown at you between uh, our own culture, Satan, and our own stupidity. There's going to be plenty of options for you to, uh, I mean, obstacles for you to overcome. Lots and lots and lots. And living out your faith, this strict training, means that you do the right thing. You consistently do the right thing. Well, I, uh, as some of you know, I have the privilege of speaking at Dallas Seminary every semester just about. So I travel down three times a year, spend a day or two in Dallas talking uh, to the classes. One of the things we talk about is... Every day of their life as a pastor, every single day, without exception, they're going to be faced with a choice. To be technical, does, our, does my confessional theology, what I say I believe, match my functional theology, the way I live life? Do they match? So you've heard me, I love to use a whole concept of not grumbling and complaining because every single one of us does it up here. Do I grumble and complain? When we talk about not judging, the moment I say to somebody, yeah, whatever, that's a judgment. The moment I look at somebody and say, yeah, I don't care, that's a judgment. And it happens in the smallest, tiniest ways. And so... Um, it's real important 
Every single day of your life, you're faced with this. It's always a puzzle to me. People that come up to me so angry because of something I say up here. And they get mad at me. And they don't recognize the hypocrisy. Because the anger of a human does not accomplish the will of God. Plain and simple. And they feel justified getting angry and telling me off for something I said. They don't recognize hypocrisy. And yet that's a big part of maturing is learning day by day, hour by hour, is what I'm, the way I'm acting, does it match to what I say I believe? That's a very important part of the church. So how is your training failing you? In what ways, in the way you live your life, how is that not leading to pressing on toward the goal? He goes on in verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, we talked about that last week, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prize that is waiting for us is a heavenly call of the King. Now, if you have very you have variety of translations out here in front of us, not all of them have the word heavenly. That's because that's not there, and uh, that's a commentary. The translators of the NIV wanted you to focus on that. It's a good focus, uh, but this passage is hotly debated. This is hotly debated. New Testament studies. What is he talking about? Because what he's talking about is I eagerly am waiting for the upward call of that, and there's a lot of varieties of that. So here's what I think is going on. I think it involves forgetting the past, not looking behind us. Nostalgia kills our faith. The good old days. What good old days? We were just talking about how uh, several of us this morning, that back when, we, when I was young and several of us that are a little older were younger, uh, it seemed like the world was a different place. It was just as broken. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just that it wasn't reported openly in the media like this today. But it was just as broken. I knew which dads had playboys in their garage. As a six-year-old boy, just as broken. I knew which school teachers were doing inappropriate things with seniors in high school. Nothing's changed. Just as broken. This involves... Forgetting the past, looking for something better. You know, honestly, as a pastor, when I think of sin, and I'm talking to a variety of you about things, uh, here's the way I look at it. I'm not an attorney. I don't need the facts. I've had more than once. I've had a husband or a wife or somebody give me a list, a letter of the sins of their spouse. That's pretty sweet. They get a three-page letter with a whole bunch of sins listed down. And you know what? I'm not an attorney. I don't care about the facts. I'm not going to look into it. I'm not a counselor. I'm not going to look and try to understand the past. If you need help sorting out how you got to where you are today, I have people that can help you. I'm a pastor. I care about redemption, which is focused on the future. Judgment is focused on the past. What I care about is, are you moving closer to the Lord? Now, if something you've done in the past is hurting you, yeah, we need to deal with it. But that's not the beginning point for me. That's not it at all. 
forgetting the past, where are we headed? Where are we headed as a church? You see, it does involve this concept of straining that he talks about, straining toward the future. So here's the real question. Is the prize heaven? Now, you've heard me talk about this. Um, I asked the question, provoked several people. Where does the Bible say you die and go to heaven? Heaven is God's domain. Earth is our domain. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. The Bible portrays Jesus as coming to us. So yes, heaven is the goal, but it's not some ethereal place up in the sky. It's the fact that God comes to dwell with us for all of eternity. So I think maybe what he's talking about here, the supper calling, maybe talking about this resurrection, it is heavenly. One of the scholars that I really, really enjoy, uh, Peter O'Brien, he says it this way about this passage. This is a call. This call is a summons to enter the kingdom. Christ's peace or into fellowship with Christ, however you want to word it. So as to be conformed to the image of Christ. We've talked about that. Being conformed to the image of Christ is technical language, which means you're becoming more and more human. That is unique to Christianity. We start with the premise that you're made in the image of God, and that is very good. You don't become something different. If you want to become something different, join Hinduism. You'll reincarnate into something different. No, no, no. Christianity says you become something better. Because God is restoring what he created. You become more generous, more loving, more compassionate, more affectionate, on and on and on. That's unique to Christianity. That's just... That's what this is. It's a summons to enter this new lifestyle that is heavenly. In other words... This is what God created us for. This is what God wants. It's a call that originates in heaven, and we share in a heavenly reward. So hold on to that thought just in a minute. We're going to see a little bit more about that. Before we go on, let's go back and look at verse 12 again. He says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is he taking hold of? How many times have we read this verse, and what does it really mean? Well, I think the key is that the verb used in this passage, I press on to take hold of that which, for which he took hold of me. This verb means to grab hold of, to grasp. So he's trying to grab hold of something for what Christ has already done to him. He's grasping hold of this prize, but the secret here is that Christ has already grasped him. Christ has already grabbed hold of him. That's, in a sense, the repeat of Philippians 1.6. I am convinced that he who began a good work, a good work singular and you plural, will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has already grabbed hold of, of you. So picture a firm hand on your shoulder. Picture that. Firm hand on your shoulder. Christ has already grabbed you. And now what you're doing is responding in love by straining forward. With confidence that Jesus already knows what to do. I've asked so many young people in this county, do you ever get the sense that there's something bigger that's just whispering your name, tapping you on the shoulder? And it's astounding how many of them say, yeah, yeah. That's another way of saying, my sheep hear my voice. I see it. They can't yet. They don't know how to hear his voice, but I already see it. 
They already see it. It's not like, it's not a, it's not uh, coincidental out here. It's not like God all of a sudden finds you when you find Him. No. I've said before, it's three things that we can always count on. God loves, you can apply it to your children, your friend, your business partner, your spouse. I don't care who it is. God loves them more than you do. He's been more intimately involved in their life than you ever will be. And He has far more experience with their sin than you ever will have. You can relax. God is sovereign. And that's the heart of the gospel. He loves every human on this planet. The point of conversion, what we say, our faith becoming real, is a point where we recognize and acknowledge who Jesus is. That's not the point that God gets involved in our lives. Every one of you that knows Christ, I'm sure, can look back and now see evidence that Christ was engaged in your life long before, long before you turned to Him in faith. I see that happening all around me. So, um, he's got this firm hand on his shoulder. And then he goes on and tells us that this is what maturity looks like. Verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take a, such a view of these things. The things that are happening in our lives. We have the Lord guiding us, directing us, steering us. He has grasped hold of us. Then he goes on. And if some of you point, and if some uh, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Okay, so then he moves on. says, join together in verse 17 and following my example. So now comes the challenge to stay faithful. This is what being a servant looks like. This is it right here. So we've worked our way through all these chapters to get to this this little section right here. This is what it means. Principle number one is in verse 17. Keep your eyes on those ahead of you in the race. Join together in following my example, he says, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. There are servants that we should emulate. We call them elders, by the way. That's one group. We call them staff. We're not better than you. We just have had some experiences. If you are a present or former elder, stand up. Look at these men and women. They've been around the block 47 times. The Christian block... I trust these folks with my life. They have learned the secret to faithfulness and they are worth paying attention to. One of my favorite books uh, on intergenerational Christian formation, the very opening sentence was worth the price of the book. The best way to be formed or shaped in Christ is to sit with the elders, break bread with them, and listen to their stories. When's the last time you invited an elder out for coffee and asked them about faith? Do you want to grow in maturity? You want to learn how to stay faithful? You want to learn how to keep pressing on toward the future? Grab one of our elders and take him out for coffee and just let him talk about faith. Faithful living. I know these men and women. They're outstanding. They have been around the block many times. Principle number two is in verse 18 and 19. 
For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many lives, uh, many, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their goal is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So if principle number one is keep your eyes on those who are ahead of you in the race. Principle number two is don't fall into the trap of distraction. One of my authors, one of the authors that I enjoy reading talks about weapons of mass distraction. That's what our country has come down to. There are a million ways to distract you in one day. I mean, these are some of the big ones. Political distractions, sexual distractions, entertainment distractions. No, is set those distractions aside. I happen to love reading the headlines and articles every day, but I know that a lot of you don't. It troubles you. Then don't read it. Whatever you read, don't believe it. (laughs) I'm one of the few people that downloads the president's tweets and the press releases and read them. And I compare them with conservative and liberal presses. You know what I've come to the conclusion? I trust none. That's my conclusion. I'm astounded at how both sides shape... I read it for the entertainment value because it makes me laugh. (laughs) I'm ashamed of our press. So if I read it, I automatically assume the opposite. I was in Britain, as you know, London, when I had surgery, (laughs) emergency surgery a couple months ago, and I had a chance to talk to about 50 or 75 Brits. And what I was discovered to find out is that they feel the same way. When we read the BBC, they automatically assume the opposite. They said, the BBC doesn't like your president. They said, we do. And I said, you don't trust your press? They said, no, think of the BBC like your National Enquirer. (laughs) That's how they thought of the BBC. We have distractions all around us. And I was astounded that it was unanimous among all of them. We have distractions all around us. We have to keep our focus on heavenly things not earthly things. Now here we have the context of what heavenly and earthly means. Heavenly means things that are important to God. Earthly means things that are important to Satan. That's what it means. The pressures on the first century Christians was no different than us. I'm going to read you a famous letter. Uh, Every person in seminary has probably read this at least once. From a governor in Western Asia Minor writing to the emperor about Christians. Okay, this is just after the turn of the first century, around 110, 112 AD. So this is 50, 60 years after Paul wrote Philippians. Okay, listen to what he says to the emperor. The charges, the charges that are being brought against Christians, are becoming more widespread and increasing in variety. An anonymous pamphlet has now been circulated, which contains the names of a number of accused persons. These are Christians. So they're now circulating publicly. These are the Christians. The question seems to me to be worthy of our consideration, especially in view of the number of persons endangered. Who's endangered? Those that are being won over to Christ. We don't want them won over to Christ. For a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial. These are the Christians that we're we're bringing to trial. And this is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but villages and rural districts too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. 
It's 100 AD. Some things haven't changed, have they? This wretched cult. That's how the Roman Empire thought of Christianity. I think, though, that it is still possible for it to be checked, in other words, controlled, stopped, and directed to better ends. For there's no doubt that people have begun to throng the temples which have almost entirely been deserted for a long time. All the pagan temples have been empty because people are coming to Christ. And they want to return that. The sacred rites which have been allowed to lapse are being performed again. Flesh of sacrificial victims is on sale everywhere. Though up until recently, scarcely, scarcely anyone could be found to buy it. In other words, we're winning. We're getting back to our pagan ways. Enough of this Christianity. It is easy to infer that from this that a great many people could be reformed if they were given an opportunity to repent and we could shut down this wretched cult. It's like Solomon says, nothing new under the sun. This is the context in which Paul was urging them to remain faithful. Look at those ahead of you on the journey. Do not be distracted. The final principle in verse, in verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, even here, we eagerly await a Savior from there. He's coming back for us. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship is in heaven. What does he mean by that? Okay, think just for a moment about the culture. 42 BC, Philippi was a setting for one of the greatest battles in the Civil War. After the victory was won, the two victorious generals, Antony and Octavian, who became the emperor of Rome himself, found themselves with thousands of unemployed soldiers. They didn't want to bring them back to Rome. last thing you want is a lot of... (laughs) A lot of military soldiers have been fighting to come back into the world of the elite. It'd be very disruptive to bring them back to the Rome, so they gave them land in Philippi, in and around Philippi. And they made Philippi a colony of Rome and gave them Roman citizenship. So Philippi was on the main road that goes east and west. It's very easy to cross the Adriatic Sea and get to Rome from there. Originally, it was a Greek town, so the descendants of the Roman soldiers and the Greek citizens, they began to not get along very well. The colonists, the Roman soldiers, were very proud to be Roman citizens. And they didn't much uh, care for the way Philippi was run. They wanted to bring Rome to Philippi. That's why it was a colony. So they brought the Roman imperial cult in Philippi. They began building structures just like the, uh, Rome, the, uh, the mothership, if you will. This is where the emperor was worshipped as Savior and Lord. We discussed that earlier in the series. If a colonist said, we are citizens of Rome, it did not mean they were looking forward to going back to Rome. That's not what it meant at all. In fact, the last thing the Roman elite wanted was a bunch of soldiers in their town. Rome was already overcrowded, underemployed as it was. The task of the Roman colonists was to bring Rome to the colony. That's what colonialization means. That was the task, to bring Rome there. And if they needed help, the Roman emperor would come to their rescue. We await a savior from heaven. To claim Roman citizenship was the same thing as claiming the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen in the local setting where you are. 
that has in mind. This is the very thing he did in Acts 16. Remember when he was in Philippi? They threw him in jail and they beat him. And the next morning, the Roman magistrate said, let him out. And he goes, yeah, I don't think so. You just beat a Roman citizen. You know what the punishment for beating a Roman citizen without due process was? Death. He had this, the Philippian magistrates in the palm of his hand. He claimed Roman citizenship, so he got the rights and privileges that went with being a Roman citizen. So when he says, we are citizens of heaven, we are the colony of heaven on earth. That's what that means. We, our responsibility is to bring the life and rule of heaven to earth. And we pray this every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a powerful statement. Christ will come back. That is our ultimate hope. He will come back for us as he promised, and he will bring the kingdom here. He will fill the world with his glory. He says all this right here. He will fill the world with his life. He'll fill the world with the power of heaven. And this includes our resurrection into a glorious body, just as his. Transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what it means that we are citizens of heaven. And this is what it means to stay faithful. So what does this mean? A couple of concluding thoughts. Avoid distractions. Let me ask you in the form of a question. What are the distractions that keep you from living into the future? One of the great distractions is dwelling on the past. Wish we could get back to it. We're not going back. No matter how good or bad the past was, we're not going back. It's not the way the Lord works. That's a distraction. How about are you worried about the future? You don't need to worry about our president, the Congress. The Lord's got that all figured out. It's above our pay grade. He's got it figured out. Vote your conscience. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But don't worry about it. What is the distraction that keeps you from straining ahead, living out your life of faith? Next week, we're going to look at uh, the first half of Philippians 4 and what it means to be a servant who rejoices. I've asked this question a variety of ways. Are we a church who is truly a servant-oriented church? Or are we a bunch of churchgoers? Very different answers. Very different responses and impact in our culture. What's distracting you? Father, thank you for your son, for sending him. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the very great things that you've done for us. We, all we can say is thank you and show you gratitude. Help us. Give us the strength as a church to live out our faith in very real ways. In your son's name, amen.